Hello and welcome to what I am calling the most anticipated show that I've ever done in my, gosh, nearly 10 years of podcasting now. Uh, I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital. This is your Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge recap, and we have with us the winner, a man who has made so many fans over the last few years being on these airwaves. I've gotten so many messages, heard so many people reach out through text, through email. Everybody just so pleased about this result at the Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge. This man who, gosh, I don't know, was it six months ago? Was it longer? Came on these airwaves in a slump with the thought that maybe talking it out would be able to uh, help him turn things around. I'd say that plan was successful, and I'm taking all the credit. He's Sean Borman. Sean, how are you, champ? I'm uh, I'm good, man. I'm sorry. That's it's, it sort of it sort of just hit me. <laughs> it took a few days. <laughs> we sit here Wednesday morning. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous! That's you know, I had a I had a smart ass line all queued up, and then you just, you just got me, man. Uh. Everything I said was true. I've passed along to you a few representative messages, but the overwhelming response has been, you know, people feel like they know you. And I think that's the thing with podcasts in general is you develop a different kind of relationship with the listeners. My theory is because even unlike, you know, my dad used to be on the radio, right? And people listen, they listen to the radio in their cars and they listen in their kitchen and there's other stuff going on, right? But when you listen to a podcast, we are literally whispering in your ear, essentially. Like there's no more direct form of, of communication. So people feel like they know you. And I think that's why the response from the public has been so overwhelming. And also just because you've been so generous. You never come on here and you know, mince words about your techniques. You you lay it all out there. You went on a podcast and gave out all your opinions. I mean, similar to what happened with Drew last year, right? He did this whole write-up saying all those opinions, and then he stuck to the script. You basically gave the script. Nobody could beat you anyway. They can't lay a glove on Sean Borman. Yeah, um, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't really know what to say, honestly. I, uh, I was oddly confident going into the weekend. Um, I thought I had a really good strategy and a good game plan and was able to stick to it. And it, it, it just, it just worked perfectly. Um, I posted, I posted the one line from the discord that um, your buddy had, had sent, which was funny, but it was more of the standard braggadocio that many would say, Oh, look for me Saturday night. I'll be the one with the big check. But then you, I, I, I hope you don't mind my revealing this. You had some more. What another prediction that was far more bold because it was just a little more, it was just so like granular, like where you were basically saying to somebody, yeah, here's what's going to happen over the next few days. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to, I'm going to win all this money and then we'll we'll go play golf next week. (laughs) It was very funny. Where did the confidence come from? Um, you know, it all sort of started, um, a year ago after, after last year's after last year's result and remind people, remind people of that. Well, so I, you know, I'm, I had 32,000 and change going into the classic. Um, I knew what Drew was going to do and, and that gave me a target to shoot for, you know, almost an exact target to shoot for. Um, and who had the 95 and was going to bet it yeah. all 
uh, presumably all on flight line. On flight line. Um, you know, so I, you know, I, I started, you know, my thought process then, you know, saying, you know, what are the exact combinations that could get me to, you know, 150,000. Um, and I liked Taiba the best to run second. Um, I thought that, you know, I thought the combinations that could, could possibly get you there, you know, I, I didn't think Epicenter did you any good. So I threw him out immediately and I, I didn't particularly like him that much. Um, life is good. Did you no good? Yep. Um, well, and he was presumably going to get cooked, right? And exactly. Like I didn't like bet against the second best speed. Yeah. You couldn't like him off handicapping. You couldn't like him off price. Right. And the Taiba, you know, the Taiba one, which is my first choice was, was good enough to get me there. Even if I made a, you know, big exacto like that, it, there was enough leeway to where I thought that was, that was the play. So, you know, I made that play. Um, I decided on it and, and then just sort of shut my brain off and, and didn't think through, you know, the other possible outcomes. And, you know, in hindsight, it, it was a big mistake to, to play all the money on that exacta and not leave yourself any, any potential outs um, if you could afford to do so. And if there were combinations that made sense that could have gotten you there. And, you know, the way I saw the race and the way, you know, what my figures told me and, you know, the potential trifecta payoffs, like the, the one logical try to sort of save with was the one that came in was yeah. Olympiad splitting them. That was sort of the logical combination that you know after you throw out epicenter and life is good that could have paid enough to to get you there and you know that sort of pissed me off and 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 bugged me ever ever since that you know when i sat down to do the recap of last year you know I, i left myself exposed when i had money that could have gotten me there um so that's sort of where all this started was just trying to come up with a strategy this year. If I was ever in that position again to where I don't leave myself exposed. Um, so, you know, fast forward to, I guess maybe a couple, couple days or maybe a week after the, the white Abario race at Saratoga, when I made that figure and, and sort of finalized that, and you know, it very quickly dawned on me that he was going to win the classic. That there mm-hmm. wasn't, there wasn't an older horse that was good enough to beat him. And he was actually on my stuff, sort of set up to run the best race he's ever run. Um, so then I just started thinking about, you know, BCBC, how to get to a position where I can make a bet on him that would win it. And then, of course, they switched the fucking order of the races around. <laughs> <laughs> threw that out the window and and Thank you, you know, Arch- Arch- Archangelo scratches and, and sucks all the value off White Abario. Yep. Um, but that was my game plan. My, my, my game plan the entire weekend was to get to around 30 to 35,000, bet it on White Abario, and then see what see where I was relative to the field. How did you build that total? Why don't Why don't we walk through a little bit of the of the tournament plays? Uh, do you have them in sure. front of you? 
Um, no, but I, I basically remember everything I did. Um, did you make any moves on Friday? Uh, nothing. You know, I, I decided on Friday that I was going to um, aggressively play minimums to try to catch something on one ticket and conservatively play my minimums on the other ticket to try to just get to Saturday intact. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I only hit one of them of the, of the six minimums I bet on both tickets. I only cashed one and that was a, a show bet unlocked. Um, so I went into Saturday with around 6,500 on, you know, ticket one or entry one and 5,700 on entry two. And so, you know, Saturday morning, I woke up and then started trying to plan that day out. And, you know, the one thing that even though I didn't, I didn't do well contest betting on Friday, I did well in cash and I did it with my European figures and they, they, you know, again, just held up really well. And Saturday morning I was sitting there, you know, sort of going over things, thinking, you know, where is your edge and how can you exploit it? And it was clearly in those European horses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had in Spiral as just much the best in the in that in the Philly and Bear turf. And you know, I I just said, you know, that's that should be your first move is some form of either a double, a straight all in double and spiral to Goodnight Olive or just a, a, a real win parlay and spiral to Goodnight Olive. And when I gamed out, you know, what I thought their potential prices would be, you know, I made the decision that said if the if the double, you know, on my sixty five hundred dollar ticket, if that cold double is getting you back thirty two thousand or more, then you play the double. If it's not, um, maybe you do the win parlay. And, you know, it turned out that... Where'd that number come from, Sean, 32,000? Well, I wanted to have, you know, somewhere north of 32 to bet on Wida Barrio. That was the whole goal. Um, I still thought you were likely to get two to three to one on him. Um, So I want, you know, after the Wida Barrio race, I wanted to be at 100 or above in position. So that was my entire, you know, goal, the entire game plan. Um, so, you know, it, you know, it turned out that it, the double wasn't the right play, um, both in spiral and Goodnight olive, you know, had sort of their last flash, they sort of clicked up in price and, you know, I, I should have done the win parlay, but, you know, it worked out and I hit that bet and was somewhere around 35, 36,000 on that on that first entry and then still had the, had the other entry. Um, and, and to be totally honest, once I was in position on my first entry, I, I don't even really remember what I did on the second entry. I still, I still played it, but it, it, it went to zero. Gotcha. Um, back, some sort of backup, something or other. With yeah. Players. Yeah. Something. We can um, look it up. We can look it up when the, when the plays come out. Let right. me pause you, if you don't mind, doing some tangents in the middle, as oh, is our launch on, 
on these pro player diaries, which is really what I should have called this show. The, uh, it's the conclusion of season one of the pro player diary. <laughs> um, the European figure work that you do, how, how much of that are you, I mean, you've been perfectly honest about it in the past, but what t- tell people as, in, in as much detail as you want, how you, how you do that. Cause I think for a lot of players, it's one of the most um, inscrutable aspects of, of playing the Breeders' Cup. Right. Um, so, you know, our good friend Rob Dove has a, has a conversion from the time form rating to a buyer, buyer like figure. Um, and, you know, I take his conversion work in, in that regard and then add to it with the, um, time form sort of sectional upgrades that they do. It's sort of like pace work. And then I'll add my own sort of late pace figure to it. So I, I end up having a, a, a final figure and a late pace figure that is similar enough to the figures that I make, um, that, that really, you know, it separates out which races the Europeans have a big advantage in, which ones they don't, which Europeans separate out amongst themselves. Um, and it, you know, you could do it. You don't really get the sectional upgrades on Japanese horses, but you can, you could use that conversion to, to get sort of buyer like figures for some of those Japanese horses now. Um, so it, it's, it's just a, it's a really helpful, helpful thing, but it's really the, you know, the late pace part of it is, as I've talked about so much is, is what really sort of separates things out even more than, than just the finals. Well, that's great. Around here, we call him Rob Dove, one of the top 10 pro punters in the UK today. And those basic numbers you were using were actually available through the analysis. You know, uh, Stephen Bonnick works closely with Dove on some of the stuff we do. Uh, we do as part of our, our Breeders' Cup package, too. So it's it's out there. I mean, and then you put your own twist on it and you obviously get it to to a, to a pretty magical place. I was surprised from having looked at numbers that you didn't have. And I assume this was one of your cash plays on Friday. I, I felt like there were a couple of results on the weekend where I was like, uh, Sean crushed that. And one of them was the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf. Is that is that one of the cash races you hit? I did, yeah. When, you know, just like everybody else in the world, I thought either River, Tiber, or Unquestionable would win that race. And then, you know, when, when Tiber scratched, it was it was just a stone-cold single and any horizontals on Unquestionable. And, and uh, you know, I played a straight exacta. Um, unquestionable into Mountain Bear. Um, he was fast because that, that that horse, you know, Mountain Bear. I, I don't know why exactly that horse got lost on the board like he did. Uh, you know, I think his last race was on synthetic, and maybe people didn't believe it or, or whatever. But that just looked like the most obvious play in the world to me. The way that exactly was coming back, and then uh, I just I played. Uh, I played the super high five for the first time in a couple of years in that race as well and hit that. So, Oh, very nice. What, why not in the contest that race? I'm curious. Well, I just had a very specific game plan mapped out for the contest. Um, and I, and I didn't deviate from it. It's prime, you know, maybe I should have, but it's, you know, it, uh, it just wasn't part of my, part of my game plan, um, to, I'd already made my minimums. I was happy with, you know, I, I didn't want to go into Saturday with much less than I had yeah. on, in the contest. So that, 
that was just you know two sort of separate things just cash and contest was were just two two separate things for me this weekend let's go back to saturday and tell us what happened on that first entry um you know so i hit that double and got to um got to around 35,000 i believe um i'm just trying to think of the order of the races now it was all sort of a blur after that um you know my whole goal at that point was just to you know i had to at at that point i had to bet every race remaining just to get my minimums in so you know i tried to try to do that as intelligently as possible without you know giving up too much ground and um i liked the distaff enough to where i bet I think I bet six hundred dollars there and got back three thousand with the with the result the way it came. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I, I I might have thought you would have needed Clarier third there, but uh, how did you? What was your approach? Well, I just I I didn't believe in Clarier. Um, oh, that's interesting. I, I just you know she had declined going into that last race at Saratoga and then ran like absolute shit. Um, so I didn't think she was going to be the best closer. And she was just completely overbet, in my opinion. So I, I keyed by the option. Um, I, I keyed Leda Vita as the closer I wanted, uh, and uh, the more I looked at that race, you know, I, I really came around to the idea that there wasn't, there just wasn't a terrible scenario for Idiomatic. I know she was dressed up, um, but that that was not a great field. And I just came around to the idea that idiomatic had to be first or second, and Leda Vita had to be there with her. Um, classic double and, key. Yeah, just a classic double key. Um, you know, if Leda Vita runs second, I was going to do really well in that race. But the way it came, I did. I did fine. And I, I moved the. You know, I moved the ball a little bit and got up to around thirty nine thousand um, or, or, or thereabouts on on that ticket. Um, and then I just bet it all on. I bet it all on White Barrio to win. So nothing in the turf. You avoided the turf. I made a, you know, I made a minimum, I, and I liked most of the off. Um, yeah. I think I, I boxed him and August Rodan, I believe. Gotcha. Um, yeah, most of that acted up. That wasn't. That wasn't. Or maybe, maybe I, maybe at the price I played King of Steel. I can't. I can't. Honestly, I can't remember exactly what I did in there. Um, it, was it wasn't a, a. It wasn't a serious play. It was just a. Yeah. I got a got a bet to not get a penalty play. Yep. And so that brings us to to White Abaria, mm-hmm. which uh, you you know you already told the story. This was a plan that was picked a very long way out, and so thirty five to win on that five to two shot, and all of a sudden you're what one hundred five one ten. I think I got up to 126. I think, if, if I remember right. No, you're probably right. I just was making, yeah. I was pulling numbers out of a hat. Yeah, no, I, I got up to 126, and I believe I was sitting third at that point. Okay. With two what, races to go. What did, the, what did the leader have? Well, I, somewhere along the way, um, the leader crushed something, and he got up to 180, which sort of moved the moved the target a bit. What was your original thought as to what you would need about 150? You know, I always think 150 is the right number to shoot for. Um, just historically, I think that's probably right. Now, I, I do think the I, I do think things are changing, and, and I think now the target's going to be a little higher consistently um, with some of the more aggressive bets these guys are willing to make and. 
these enormous all-in bets that they're willing to make at the end. So I think I think from now on, I think 180 to 200 might be the right target. But for for this year, I my original target was you know 150 to 160. Yeah. Um, when when I think it was Mike Mulvihill got up to 180, then I really had to you know start thinking and strategizing on on what to do and and this is you know part of my plan for all of this was to to get to the spot that I got to was to get to a hundred thousand or higher on white barrio and then I decided that you know i I don't think the the six figure all in bet is the right play to, to in these contests. I think there's a, I think there's a point in these things where you absolutely have to be willing to risk your bankroll. Yes. At least once, probably twice to get into position. But then there's also a point where this is real money. Yep. And this isn't a poker tournament where you buy in and you can't leave with what's sitting in front of you. Like we can walk away with this money and you know, I was in a position to where I could lock in a six-figure cash day plus whatever prize money that got me, you know, probably at, at minimum another 50000 and leave that place with, the, you know, the, the best weekend I've ever had without taking, you know, as a, as and that was my downside. And that was just the my entire goal was to be able to do that and then take whatever amount I thought was necessary to try to win the contest or get second or just make it the you know the 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 weekend of a lifetime right so you know then I, you know I, I had 20 to 25,000 dollars to work with to try to win the thing and, and how did you come up with a with a number that you were shooting at at that point well you know I It, it, it was just a lot of, you know, here, here was my thought process. This may have been right. It may have been luck. I, you know, I don't know. Both the leader. That one leader, guy on Twitter, that one guy on Twitter, Sean, did say you just got lucky. Well, he did. But in fairness, that's an anonymous dog. So I don't really know, you know, if the dog knows what he's talking about. Um <laughs> Exactly. I mean, he may be the best gambling dog in the history of dogs on Twitter, but he, yeah, you know, it, it could have been luck. Labrador would disagree. I have to say, <laughs> you know, super, super sky point to mugs. Yeah. I think Norman would disagree too. I think Norman's probably got, you know, pretty good chops and I, and I'm pretty sure the dog w- was affiliated with the guy who finished second, um, to some extent too. Um, so you know, there may have been some sour grapes there from awesome. from that from that anonymous dog, but you yeah, never awesome. know. I'm um, sorry, I, I took you off the thing. You, you were about to give your logic for the number you shot for. Sure. So both the guy, you know, both players in front of me were at really high totals and also had some money on their second entry, like decent money, twenty to thirty thousand, I believe. Um, so those guys had really locked in incredibly good weekends so i didn't anticipate them to do much other than try to move the ball forward a little bit especially the leader i didn't think that you know tough he spot gonna, from a he game point of view for mike what a tough spot 
Right. Like he wasn't going to make a hundred thousand dollar bet in that race and risk all this money. Like he, you know, he's going to play either conservatively or not play at all or something. So, you know, I really thought if I could get to 185 to 200, that would probably at least lock up first or second. Um, so that was sort of the number I was I was looking at to get to without taking too much risk, right? And, you know, I decided at this point, you know, I was seeing things so clearly. Um, you know, I really thought I'd analyze the pace of all these races almost exactly right all day really for a few weeks leading into the into the Breeders' Cup, I was just seeing the ball as good as I've seen it in years, you know, in Hong Kong and all, all over. Um, and like, you know, on our, our preview pod with Duke, we talked about the pace of that sprint race a lot, and there just wasn't a bad spot for elite power. You know, if they if they go way too fast, he's going to outfinish them. If they go too slow, try to back it down, he's going to outfinish them. He's drawn well. He's not going to get a bad trip. Um, you know, the only real, the only real doubt that I had about the the outcome of that sprint race was if, you know, I, I was sure that Gunnet Gunite would be best of speed because I, those California speed horses just didn't finish well enough. And so, you know, my only real doubt was like, does Dun does Gunite get beat for second? It just looked very clear to me that that was an eight nine exacta, and you know if he if Gunite gets beat for second, then I need to save in the try just a little bit. But it, you know, it just was very sort of clear cut to me. Um, so my first move was to see like how big of an exacta do I need to bet to to possibly get to my number and give myself a chance to win this thing, and then how big a tries do I need to play? Do I need you know do I need to save with that could could maybe get me there and so for there it was just math it was just what are the what's the target how much do you need to bet and you know i initially had a ten thousand dollar shred exacta queued up and was was about ready to hit submit i was playing on express bet and i was about ready to send it and i said i need to let me check the price one more time and as i was looking at it it clicked down and i was like eh, you know if this clicks down one more time after the bell this might not be enough. So I just said, you know, Sean, stop being a pussy. Don't bet 14,000 Bet 20, make it a $16,000 exacta and just try to win this fucking thing. And I changed it at the last second and it worked. And so you had 16 in, in the exacta and you had back, you had like four in backup tries. Correct. What I'm yes. just curious, who did you, who did you have splitting them in tries? Not Nakatomi, I'm guessing. It was not Nakatomi. I had the Chosen Vron and Speedboat Beach. Um, and really just because a couple people that I respect their opinion liked those horses. Um, and, and, the, and the tries were, were good enough when I, when I looked at them to, to, get me, to get me there. I mean, those try plays were really more of to maintain my position in third place or maybe try to get into second if things didn't go right. The exact it was the play I made to win the contest. That's amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. I love it. When you talk about knowing what the tries would pay, you're just you didn't have any special info on that other than just guessing based on the exactus. 
No, they give you triprobables in California. You could see oh, it. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Where, yeah. Where's that info? On the Express Bet site? On, on Express Bet, yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, that's terrific. They don't. Now, last year they don't. So last year's play, you know, was more, should have been, you know, if I had thought things out last year, that would have been more of a guess based off the exactness. But this year they actually give them. Um, so what was happening to you? Let's talk about let's talk about the race itself and the and the immediate after. Actually, no, let's set it up a little bit differently. So last year, there's no nothing wrong with this. But just I, I think it's important to inform the story. I can go back and cut it this out if you're not comfortable with me saying it. But I think we've talked about it on these airwaves. Last year, you did you know you were you were playing with a syndicate. You you essentially you had a backer and you had a percentage and et cetera mm-hmm. et cetera. This year, interestingly, after coming that close. After seeing the kind of bet that won it last year, you, you decided to you decided to go it alone. So I was assuming that you had a backer, and I it's just so funny because I would have come up with a a guess of a number you would have finished with. It was pretty much exactly what you finished with, but thinking you would have you would have gone all in because obviously what you're saying about real money and those dynamics it changes when you have when you have backing. Um, right. But it's so interesting to me that you made the decision this year to to come in here. Well, I'm sure you could have found a load of people who would have backed you. I, I from what I understand, you didn't have a penny of backing this time around. How, why was that the case? Well, quite frankly, it's because I believed I would win it, and I didn't want to, you know, dilute it. Win over half a million dollars and only personally walk away with ten percent of it or twenty percent of it. You know, I, I wanted, I wanted to win it, and I wanted to do it with my money, and I wanted to sort of make a statement. <laughs> well, how would you describe that statement? I, you know, I, I, I'll just say this to the guy that cornered me twenty years ago at my in-laws' house and, and told me I, you know, couldn't support a wife and family, and was making a enormous mistake and probably should go to gamblers anonymous how does it fucking taste now my man (laughs) (laughs) you gotta find out who that guy was statement yeah that guy was if he's still around i know exactly who he was i don't (laughs) think he's still around but (laughs) that might be my favorite moment in the history of the shows and i know that stung you because we've talked about that We've talked about that before. And I mean, I think what we're getting into here is, and the reason why I'm going to go ahead, look, there are other professional gamblers have, have won the BCBC, but, but, you know, none of whom have been so public and interested in, in helping other players as you, but there's something, I mean, there's something justified and fantastic about somebody who has given his professional life to this game and to and to handicapping and gambling and who has the scars on his body for doing that for 20 years there's something rewarding and correct about you getting to getting to have this honor i mean obviously <laughs> you know the least thing i would mean is to disrespect any you know more contest oriented player because i don't have a job without them i'm best friends with many of them. And I, it's a, it's a noble pursuit. And I, and I, and I root for those guys uh, almost as much as I, I root for myself, but 
you know what I mean? There's something a little bit more like poetically appropriate about somebody like yourself uh, uh, getting this, getting this accolade. And, and it's, uh, it's exciting. And I, and I think that's part of the reason why it's, it's resonated with, uh, with, with so many people. I know this is a hard well, one. Yeah, well, you go yeah, ahead. Uh, well, I just wanted to say, you know, and, and another thing, you know, I wanted to do was I wanted to do it without making an obscenely large all in win bet. Because I, you know, and I'll just be completely honest here. That may be the right strategy. I don't think it is, but, you know, I may be wrong. I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> but as you somebody. You also kind of thing where reasonable people can disagree. 100%. And, and, yeah. And but, we're going to have, this is another show we're going to have a debate about this. Not, I think, I, I think we'll leave you on the sideline because we've gotten you to talk about it so much. But there, at some point, there will be a Matt Miller, Marshall Graham you know, me moderating an interesting debate about this topic. But anyway, you, as you were saying. Well, I, I was just going to say, like, as somebody who knows how difficult it is to make $10,000 betting on races, much less $100,000, to just treat $100,000 as flippant as some of these people treat it, it's honestly insulting to me. And I wanted to prove that that's, that's not exactly how you have to go about this. Like you can, this is a betting competition and you can bet your way to these numbers using your skills as an exotic better or strategy or whatever, without risking what is for most people a year's salary to do it. I, I, I just, I think it's wrong. I don't think it's necessary. But that's just me. I mean, well, it's clearly not necessary, as you just proved. But I'm going to play therapist now. We're going to go deep here. You probably weren't. I wasn't expecting to go in this direction, but I like it. But you said something really interesting, and I have a theory that I'll put forth. But I want to get it out of you first. Why is it insult? I get, I get not wanting to do it. I don't get the. I don't understand the personal affront you seem to take from from that from that competing uh, strategy. And again, my my view on this is that reasonable minds can disagree. But why would you say insulting? I, because it's an incredibly difficult to make a hundred thousand dollars in this game in a day. And I think that needs. I think that should be respected more than just saying, you know, I'm willing to bet. You know, at, at at most you're going to get three to one on that money. If you bet one hundred twenty thousand dollars to to win six hundred, I mean, yeah, you can sit there and say, "Well, I turned a fucking eight to five shot into a three to one shot," but it's pretty good. Sounds pretty good to me. I'll tell you the exact position yeah. I was in, and you can tell me if you think I was being dumb or not. So I had a third of two entries, and I was all about pushing in. 75 to make uh i I was figuring it might end up coming back to be about 700 what did you end up making for for winning the whole thing with a 230 bankroll 640 640 so in reality it was 75 to win 640 whereas my alternative to that in my mind would have been and granted it's not really 75 it was 25 because i'm only a third again this is where the backing thing comes in like if I'd have walked away there, that would have been silly to me. I mean, yeah, I guess seventy-five. You st- I still would have gotten. I don't know. I walk away with thirty, forty thousand, and then there's taxes and da da da. I mean, it's not money that would have really mattered to me. I mean, it matters, but it, it's not life changing. Whereas to me, to get 
a third of the, the 640 would have been. So like, I don't know, every situation's different and backing changes everything. But like, to me, we're just playing a game with numbers. The buy-in is 20. I just made, I did the mental jujitsu and said, the buy-in is, is 10,000. And I'm just gonna, you know, my part of it is 6,000 and I'm treating it like monopoly money and I don't care. It's not a disrespect to, to certainly to, to someone like you. It's just like a totally different mentality about, about the tournament. Does that make sense to you or does that sound crazy? Be honest. No, it, it makes total sense. I just, I just completely disagree. I mean, it, it's not, it's not monopoly money. It is real money that you can do stuff with. I mean, it's, you can, you know, do whatever the hell you want to with it. You don't have to bet it. There's no forced bets other than $600 minimums. So, you know, if you, if you don't have to risk it, if you can come up with a scenario where that's not necessary and accomplish what you're trying to accomplish, to me, that's a hundred percent better than just automatically saying I've got to risk all this money. I agree with that. I think if you're saying I gotta, you're in you're in a little bit of trouble. I mean, I think for for me also, it had to do with what a plan was beforehand and what the what the risk reward strategy was. The other reason I thought you might push it all in was hearing you say on these airwaves how winning the con- this contest would would mean. You know, I don't remember what you said, but it mean the world to you or something, something, mm-hmm. something like that. Whereas, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm being provocative here. Don't, don't, don't take any offense. Obviously, at the end of the day, the hundred thousand, being able to walk with the hundred thousand meant more to you than than winning the contest. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, no, it's a hundred percent fair. And I, I, you know, throughout the day on on Saturday, well, Friday and Saturday, but but mainly on Saturday. Um, you know, and I, I, I should, I should thank this person publicly. I've done it privately, but I'll say it here, you know, I was sitting with Marshall and Nick, you know, Tamaro and, you know, throughout the day on Saturday, Nick and I would walk out to the little terrace area outside our room and, and we just have chats and, you know, we talk about TV shows and, you know, interesting characters around Lexington and Houston. And, and of course we would talk about racing and, you know, those chats helped me sort of stay focused and slow my thinking down and stay sort of grounded. And, you know, one of the chats that we had was about this last bet. And, and one of the chats I had with myself sitting out there by myself was, was about, you know, do I need to risk all this money? Or to win this stupid thing, or do I need to to not? And you know, I, I I could not come home, miss five days with my family, look my wife in the eye and say I had maybe two hundred thousand dollars locked up for us, and I pissed it away. That wasn't going to happen. So it it was almost net. You know, it it may have briefly crossed my mind for one second. Do I need to shoot all this money? But it was never going to happen. Would it have been different if it was flight line instead of elite power? No. No, because I really believe in my whole game plan was to get to this position I was in, and I really believed I could outbet the rest of that field. I didn't, I didn't think that I personally needed to do that. So, no, it wouldn't have made a difference if it was flight line. 
again, like if I was in Drew's position last year, I would have taken probably, I believe he was at 97,000 and change. I would have said, I'm leaving here with 80,000. I'm going to take 17,000 and I can get 17,000 up to and, and win 70 with it to get to that 150 number. And I may have done it. I may not have. I don't know. But I, I'm not risking close to six figures on a horse race just for for glory. Because, you know, I, I told you how much this meant to me. You saw how much it meant to me after it happened. But the one thing I've been consistent about is I play for money. I mean, this is my livelihood. This is my family's livelihood. And I can't risk an enormous sum of money for personal glory. As as good as it feels, that that's just not a that's not a thing I'm willing to do. Different people are in different positions and exactly that comes down to backing, that comes down to the position that, that you're in in life. And, and I think from your point of view, it makes sense. All right. So here's my theory as to why you're insulted beyond what you're saying. I'm not saying what you said wasn't accurate or whatever, but so I've known you for 20 years now and, you know, we've been close for close to a decade. And mm-hmm. I know that going back to the, you know, almost wouldn't be the full 20 years, but you, you've had an issue with certain contest players. And, and well, I'll just call them out here. You had a specific encounter with a pick three boy. If you were, if you recall the story, no, and, I recall the story. And 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 I remember you feeling like a little bit. I'm just going to say a little bit of a chip on your shoulder, maybe when it comes to contest players, certain ones, almost looking down at or not not believing or not respecting what the likes of you, what the likes of Mike Maloney did. As I recall, one particular pick three better saying of Mike Maloney uh, that Mike wasn't the best horse player because he was the best horse player playing in, you know, a handful of of contests a year. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I feel like there's some part of you that as much of a one up four down this was to the guy to the the in-law who told you to go to uh, the guy at the in-law's house who told you to go to Gamblers Anonymous, that it's a little bit of a one-up, four-down to to that mentality and to to that guy as well. A (laughs) hundred percent. I mean, that guy in particular looked down on me because I went to the windows and better race at Beulah. I think his exact quote was, I don't want to play if I can't play for a million (laughs) dollars. And I believe not long after that, he had – well over a hundred thousand dollars in the BCBC after Friday, and this was back, you know, ten or twelve years ago when when that was a move back then. I mean, the winning scores back then may have been ninety or hundred thousand. Yeah, the contest and, was over at that point, and the contest was over at that point. Except he wanted to win a million dollars, and you know what he did? He fucking pissed it away, <laughs> and he hasn't been on a goddamn leaderboard since. <laughs> I didn't realize how incendiary this was going to get. Well, um, oh look, like, yeah, I do take those comments as a personal affront because that's what they're meant to be. You know, that was a, I'm better than you. I don't need to go up here to bet Beulah. I'm a, you know, I'm a big hot shot. I'm a pick three boy. I'm a, you know, go to hell. <laughs> We've got him fired up, folks. We've got him fired up. I will say, I feel like you have maybe carried on some of 
the I'll just say it legitimate vitriol you had from that to 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 some other of the of the people in the contest world. I mean, especially Kinchin. What's he ever done to to hurt anybody? And there you are rooting him down all the time. I'm kidding. Well, I mean, God, all in on Timberlake. Come on, man. I told you all, I told you all that horse was phony. That was just terrible. We love JK. JK's one of my best friends in the world. And you know, he's he's my man. Uh, it no, pisses me off when people go after him. Oh, it's, it, it really is. It really is one of the things that gets me the most riled up. You can't mock JK. Only we can mock JK. For God's exactly sake. right. We've earned, we've earned the right. Oh my God. So there's still so much to, to unpack here, but I think, yeah, I think I, I really do think some of the, some of that attitude is all, I think it's all tied up in that. I mean, so, so, um, Let's go. Let's go to the immediate emotion of the moment. What What are the first things uh, running through your head on the day? Yeah, after you found out you won. Well, I mean, hell, you were with me, Pete. You, I, I I sat down on those dirty stairs at Santa Anita and just cried for five minutes. <laughs> just, you know, wept like a baby, and then got it together long enough to call my wife and tell her I had officially won. Well, not officially, but had had won, and cried some more and got to talk to my nine-year-old who was still awake for some reason. Um, <laughs> and it's funny how that happens when we go away. Bedtime gets extended somehow. Yeah. yeah I guess it really wasn't that late. It was probably what, 530 <laughs> West Coast time. So yeah, that wasn't too bad. But um, yeah, you know, it was just, it, it was for all the reasons we just talked about. It was just, it was very emotional and it was, you know, a realization that I made a, an obscene amount of money and, and to change things for my family and the realization that, you know, we could have this conversation and I could piss on some people and, <laughs> you know, ultimately, you know, really it was, it was, you know, I was going to be able to, sorry. No, it's Okay. I'm leaving it in. I'm just telling you that right now. I'm not cut. I'm not. I'm not that's getting you off the hook here. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, just to, to be able to call my parents and tell them. Well, and I remember because that had to be a thing. I mean, going back to your origin days as a, a professional player. I mean, it took a lot of uh, of faith from your parents to to support this plan. And, and granted, you did have a a mentor in Mike Maloney, somebody who's known in the Lexington community who was able to to help you in the early days that I'm sure it made it like a little bit easier for them. It's not like you were just Don Quixote um, tilting at, at, at windmills here. You, you, at, at the worst, you, you were Sancho Panza to, to Maloney's uh, Quixote, but really what it meant was you, you had somebody who I'm sure uh, they could see that this could be done, but it still had to take a real leap of faith. And, I mean, the, I, I can't even imagine. I may start crying here, but I can't even imagine the, the vindication you felt in that in that moment for you know for them to give you that blessing all, all those years ago to do this thing that objectively is pretty freaking crazy. I'm going to go bet on horses turning left for a living. Yeah, no, it you know their their support means the world, and it always has. And I know they haven't always agreed with it, um, but they were always there, and have always been behind me and it's it, it means everything one thing i thought was amazing is 
And this is where, and I'm being perfectly honest here, I admire you, forget anything to do with horse placing, the horse racing, but I just admire you so much as a man and a father. I'll be honest, I, I'm in your shoes. I, my, my first thought about the night, God, this makes me sound like a bad husband and father, but I'm just going to tell the truth. I, my thought is, where's, <laughs> where's the party? <laughs> your thought is, I got to get on the first flight home and see my family. It was beautiful to see, honestly. And, uh, you know, we, we, we toasted you and not just your, your horse racing ability, but your, uh, your ability as a as a as a father and a husband when we went to your victory dinner without you. Yeah, that's right. I, I guess we should say that I immediately booked the red eye home and, and left. Um, <laughs> left, didn't go to dinner, didn't you know, took a shower and got on the plane. I did. I did sit in bed the first at shot in in the airport before I got on the plane. Um, did you hit? No, I missed. <laughs> I missed. Got to stay humble in this game. Oh my God, that's amazing. Let's talk about some. Uh, let's talk about some history. Let's talk about Mike Maloney for a minute. Um, I understand you heard from him from him in the in the immediate aftermath. What were the contents of that phone call? Uh, you know, I haven't actually spoken to him. He sent me a text, and I texted him back and, and told him that you know it wouldn't wouldn't have happened without him, um, which is true. Um, you know, Mike's the best, man. I, you know, I got, I was, I was so lucky to be able to, to sit, sit and learn from, from the best and learn incredibly good habits, learn some bad habits, um, which is probably more important. Um, because I've always thought that, that failure and mistakes are how you actually get better. Not, yeah. you know, doing things like this. It's, you know, this last weekend was not possible without the mistake from last year. And that's right. one of the most important things I learned from Mike was to go over your mistakes, you know, to be okay with making them, but to do it on a scale where you don't put your liquidity and your livelihood at risk. Um, For sure. And, and that, you know, that, that's, that's why I'm where I'm at today is, sitting there with him so yeah i owe i owe tons to mike i always will they're your best teacher mistakes and and uh, there's no doubt about that what's a lesson you know obviously you played with mike for a long time you took a little bit of a, 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 a short hiatus you came back playing you know more independently you created this uh this personal database that you use for your figures and all that that was a great lesson you learned from Mike. What's something, what's a lesson you had to learn on your own? Um, I think, uh, I think more on the handicapping side, I think just the pace analysis I've been able to, to delve into the last six to eight years has, has made all the difference for me. Um, it took me from a, you know, pretty good player to I think a pretty great player um, and I think it gives me an enormous advantage at times it's you know day to day it's probably not what it used to be but on, on these big weekends and these big days I think you know I think I'm able to suss out the pace of these races a, a lot more intelligently than most um, I think that's probably the biggest biggest thing that that's 
changed in my game since I've since Mike and I were working together on a day to day basis. Is it a question just uh, we've talked before about how you feel like the late pace can be more of an indicator of ability in many instances than a final figure. But this to me sounds like you're talking about what Duke Matisse would call or Paul Matisse would call race design. Does some of it have to do with just being able to look at the different components of a race and then envision in your mind where different horses are going to be. Talk a little bit more about pace generally. Well, I mean, it all goes hand in hand. I mean, it's, it's race design in that, you know, you've got to have a good set of early pace figures and you've got to know, jockey tendencies and what they're going to do and where horses are going to be around the track. But then the late pace figure just separates, separates all that out to me. And, you know, the, the Timberlake thing is, is another good example because as as fast as that horse ran in the champagne and as brilliant as he looked, he ran an 82 late pace figure that day, which is dismal. Um, and it just screamed fraudulent race to me. And, and that was his best late pace figure of his life. And, you know, those are the kind of things that helps me avoid is making just terrible bets on completely phony horses. When Important thing to avoid. Well, absolutely. Um, and, and a lot of times those horses get bet very heavily because they look so brilliant. <clears throat> Excuse me. And because they you know, seem like they're improving and, and all this stuff. But, you know, that horse wasn't going to win that race one time out of 10, in my opinion. Um, so th- that's where, you know, those those late pace figures just separate that kind of stuff out, at least mine do, um, and give you, you know, like the elite power thing, like, the, you know, a lot of people probably didn't want to bet that horse at eight to five as a closing sprinter on a California speed track. But like I said, there, there just wasn't a bad pace scenario for a horse like that. Um, he was tactical enough to where he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a run from last stone dead closer. He was just a good finisher. Um, and horses like that are, are extremely dead. Yeah. And then, you know, like also in that race, Speedboat Beach, you know, ran a big triple digit figure, but ran a late pace figure in the 80s. And he did that running, you know, fairly soft early pace figures. So like you just, you, it gives you a confidence to know those horses are completely phony. And a lot of times they're short prices. And those are just great betting opportunities. It makes sense. And, and it's it's hard information to find commercially. It's kind of odd in a way that you, who I assume grew up more with, you know, DRF and, 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 and final figures. I mean, the stuff you're talking about, the closest commercial way to find it is, and, you know, no, nobody here's a sponsor, so I'm just going to, you know, be honest. Uh, but, you know, the, the way that the Brisnet ratings look at the world sounds very similar to the way that you look at the world. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, Mike, his original database was, was through Brisnet. So we had access to those, to their figures. Got 20 years ago at this point. Um, and so I've, I'm used to seeing them. And for the longest time, we didn't pay any attention to the, to the late pace figures. 
But then once it started to dawn on me that that was so much more important than what I was paying attention to, that's sort of when my, my thought process about all this changed. And so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the Briz figures take a lot of shit publicly. Uh, you know, people think they're no good. Uh, you know, they're as good as anything out there, honestly. Like, and the, and the mistakes that they do make, they're all computer made. And the mistakes that they do make are so glaring it's that it's a mistake that you can pretty easily sort of suss that out and, and still bet off, off those with confidence, in my opinion. So, so other than a, a sponsorship deal with Briss, what's next for Sean Borman? Uh, you know, just, just I'm a little behind on my Hong Kong work. I've got, you know, I'm sitting here looking at three days of trip notes I need to take. So I'm probably spend the rest of this week getting caught up and then back, just back to it, man. Trying to, you know, I've, I've got, I've got one more thing on my professional checklist I want to accomplish. So I'm going to try to get to accomplishing that. What? Um, I got a probe. What's that? Uh, you know, I want, I want to cash a ticket for over a million dollars. I assume that is a Hong Kong based goal. Well, if I can do it in the States, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to, but yeah, I would, I would imagine it probably would be, probably be in Hong Kong. I mean, I'm not going to change my, my business plan, you know, after, after this year um, to, to start betting any more in the States than I am now. So um, yeah, I'm going to, you know, try to try to get this project I've been working on for for Hong Kong wrapped up and and just keep at it. Man. You know, their their season is getting getting to sort of the the meat of it where you can really start finding some good bets. So um, that's, you don't that's have to focus. answer you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to. But I, I imagine there's going to be some industry people listening here, um, and I want to talk about this because I mean. How telltale is it that you, who's a professional player in the U.S. for so many years, have basically changed to where Hong Kong is your focus, except for the, for the, for the biggest days? I don't know what the right way to illustrate this is. If you're willing to talk handle figures, and maybe you could just do it in percentages if you don't want to talk numbers. But what's happened to your USA handle from your peak to, to, to now as you've made this transition over to primarily betting in Hong Kong? God, from my peak, um, yeah. well, it, it handle overall is, is down dramatically. Um, probably, probably a third of what it was a decade ago. Okay. Um, but wait, that's overall, that's not even just o- talking about overall. I'm, really interested in, my, I'm interested my, in just the U S my U S handle is probably down 80 to 90%, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I'm betting, you know, I, I, I probably bet 80% of my money in, in Hong Kong on a, on a day-to-day basis, if not more day-to-day. I mean, it's going to be skewed because I handled a lot in the contest and that's going to, you know, that counts sure. as handle. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's down dramatically. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, it, it's even pre-BCBC, I was going to have the best profitability year I've ever had off the lowest handle I've ever had. So, you know, I don't, you know, from, from handle standpoint, that's not a good sign for the industry. I mean, if I can make more money by betting less, that's what I'm going to continue to do. I, you know, I expose myself to much less risk and then making more money. 
you know, but that's just a structural, structural thing within, within the industry, within the tote, the way they've, the way they've, you know, let the, let the computer teams operate and, and sort of forced me to do the exact opposite, and, you know, spreading out and trying to be efficient. I'm never going to do that better than them. So I'm going to skinny down and, and be inefficient and try to hit home runs. What and, would the U S industry need to do to get you back to betting something close to what you were at your peak here? And I mean, you're speaking for basically everyone, all our pro players we have on the show, I know are going to have a very similar answer to you. But again, I think we'll have some very uh, important industry people listening to this. I just, I think it's good for them to hear it. You know, honestly, I think, The computer teams are not going anywhere, and and they shouldn't go anywhere. I mean, they, they provide an enormous amount of liquidity and stability to some extent to the marketplace. They could they could provide stability to the marketplace, but we allow them to operate as sort of market makers, but only making markets for themselves. Yeah, you know, the way they can, they, exactly. Um, <laughs> So like when they're the only people that truly have an idea of what the closing prices are going to be and they get the biggest rebates and they get all the technological advantages, they're just slowly killing off the day-to-day players. And they're more importantly, they're, they're slowly killing, well, maybe even quickly killing off the middle of the market. Guys like me and like Paul and Mike and Duke who have the ability to bet serious money but don't have the ability to get in last and don't you know aren't two dollar betters i think that's probably the 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 portion of the marketplace that's shrunk the most because you know there's some truth to the fact that like two dollar betters they're aware of the takeout but they don't necessarily care about it in that you know their livelihood and tied up in it they you know, they, they enjoy the game. You know, there's a p- part of the marketplace that, that, that exists that that's true. But it's, it's, it's us in the, you know, upper middle part of it that have just, that have just gotten eaten alive, handle wise. And if they don't, if they don't fix that, if they can't figure out a way to keep us around, then eventually there won't be a marketplace because the computer teams will, kill us off though you know you don't get enough handle and revenue from the two dollar betters to survive and then the computer teams will just be playing you know one giant computer team against the other it won't be the value and those guys aren't horse players they're mathematicians and they'll just go to a different marketplace you know they'll trade bitcoin or they'll go to the stock market or the sports market probably and then that's the end of it yeah so they've got to figure out what they want out of all this and i think we all know what they want is one dollar today versus ten dollars tomorrow but that that's just a horrendous business plan long term and you know i I have no faith that they're going to fix it you know i heard some rumblings this past weekend from the event that you hosted that you know there's strides being made and the tote system and all, you know, the same old lip service we've heard for 20 years, but I have no faith that it's actually going to happen. So I don't, you know, I don't know what they can do or what they're willing to do to get to fix things. Um, but that, that would be, you know, fixing and updating the tote system 
should be priority number one. And then not giving every advantage possible to computer teams in the process of fixing the tight system. That, you know. It's beautiful. And, but... of co- and, and of course, you know, pricing the product correctly. It's the, the takeout's too damn high. Like if you can offer these teams 15% rebates, then the, then the pricing is wrong. Like, right. You know, it, it, it's, but it's, you know, everybody will look at like, you know, when Canterbury lowered their takeout across the board years ago and then nobody bet Canterbury. Well, it can't just be one track or one pool because that gives, you know, it has to be industry wide across the board. Because if it's just one track, then it's just too easy to not bet that track. It's too easy for the computer teams to not play there. And then they the track and say, well, fuck our handle, dwindle. We can't do this anymore. we got to raise it back to 25%. That, that's not reality. I mean, it's got to be across the board pricing changes and an updated tote system. And that's, you know, one and one. That's going to cost money in the short term from the pricing change, and it's going to cost money to fix the tote system and we all know that ain't gonna happen so <laughs> it is what it is i just want to piggyback one thing about the importance of having a better takeout slash gambling experience for the two dollar better so the people like you and duke and paul and mike your annuities to the game if you look year after year at the amount of money the industry makes off of you guys it's incredible um and but the thing is where's the next generation going to come from if not from people coming in from the outside and recognizing it, not just as a way to pee money away on a weekend at Keeneland, but something where you can actually compete and have fun. And, and, and that experience will lead to the next Sean Borman is the way that I, I look at it. And if you, they might not know what the takeout is, but they know that their dollar goes a lot farther when they're betting sports than they are coming in and playing into an effective I mean, the take, what's the takeout effectively for a random bet? 50, 50 cents on the dollar? Probably more, knowing how much money the computers are, are taking out of it and how efficient it is. I'm just going to conservatively say a 50% takeout. Like, they're just going to be they're gonna be gone because it's not – the lottery can get away with a 50% takeout because you're selling a dream and you get to have that dream from the moment you buy your ticket, right? So, like, maybe they can get away with something crazy. We can't. You know, we can't. And I understand about the cost of putting on the show and all that, but, man – I, I mean, let's just play fantasy world for a second. If you lowered the takeout enough to where the, and again, short, this is never going to happen in, in short term, it would cause all kinds of problems, but, you know, let the computers just compete in a fair way. They're so smart, they're going to win anyway. And then at least, you know, we have a chance that we can have a healthy ecosystem. I, I, one of the most memorable moments, and I'll follow up on this on a pod, from um, the WOTA forum the other day, World Toad Association was hearing the different perspectives where, you know, Sweden is a pretty robust um, gambling culture. And, uh, but having uh, Hasse Skarplot, I hope I got Hasse's name right this time, um, say that, you know, he felt like a, a tote market that had any appreciable percentage of computer money, robotic money in it, was a, was an unhealthy ecosystem. It was just so fascinating to hear. And that's a place where it's maybe 2 3%, I'm guessing. But anyway, people, other people around the world understand this. I think we on some level understand it. I don't know that we'll ever be able to get anything done about it, but I do think it's important. At least I just, you know what I mean? I, I don't want to just be so cynical as to not, not try. And hey, you're at least 
spending breath on telling people what to do, even if we have no faith that it's ever that it's ever going to happen. But yeah, I mean, how do we let somebody like Sean Borman and like these other people move their 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 tack to Hong Kong? We have all this racing in America. Can't we can't we find a way? Can't we find a way to 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 keep it? healthy i don't know i appreciate you uh you chiming in on all that uh, on all that stuff do you think at least in the realm of contests you might increase your your u.s play will this change will this change that at all wanting to qualify for bcbc for next year or something like that probably not honestly um i mean i might i might play the keeneland contest um just because it's keeneland but even that, a lot of times those those Keeneland contests just fall on bad weekends for me, gotcha. family wise, and it's hard to hard to do. But no, I don't. You know, I don't really anticipate much of a change. I mean, you know, like I just said, I'm having the. I feel like I've fallen into a pretty good rhythm, and I'm having the you know, best year I was ever going to have before this huge score. So um, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna keep on. I'll I'll play the BCBC next year, obviously might play you know one or two others um i don't i don't you know i i don't love trying to qualify for these contests because i think you know you could you can easily just lose more than the actual entry fee if you're not really dialed into the to the contest scene um and that's just not my that's just not my game i mean i you know guys like drew and matt and marshall and you know they're they're real real contest players that that could very easily qualify um, for for less than the entry fee. So I you know I I'm not going to waste a lot of my a lot of my time doing that. And it's just you know personally, uh, most of the contests are on the weekends when I've sort of designed my professional life around not working on the weekends anymore, unless it's right. in the middle of the night. So you know, I, I'd much rather. Yeah, I'd much rather just spend time with the, with the girls than than have to sit in front of the computer all day sweating out a two thousand dollar contest. No, I get um, it. I get it. You mentioned those other uh, prolific contest players in 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 general. I mean, you're you. I, I would imagine, especially off the back of of this victory, that they're you know they're, it's something you respect, but it's just you know it just sounds like it's just not. It's not the way you were raised in the game, and, it, and it's not going to become a, a bigger part of your arsenal just because you had one big score. That's what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, no, I, I certainly respect what they do. I mean, they they're they're extremely good at what they do, um, but it's not. You know, we've talked about this before. Like, I, this has always been a career to me. It's not a, you know, a love. Like, there are things I love about it, particularly the friendships I've made. Um, but it's not like, I, I don't have any desire in my life anymore to, to sit in this basement all day Saturday and all day Sunday and, you know, and work. Like I, I would much rather just spend time with my family and then work in the middle of the night when I, when Hong Kong's running, because it doesn't interfere with their lives. Yeah. Um, and I can go to Maggie's swim meets and I can, you know, just be a dad. And that's ultimately, that's my job. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to change much. Um, and that's, you know, back to the, the handle discussion and the, what the industry can do discussion. I mean, that's just a personal choice that I've made. I mean, 
even right. if things do change, it's probably not going to suck me back in all that much. But for the industry as a whole, it needs to change. I think that's a, I think those are those are good points. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I getting a taste of the contest play and the fun of it. I of course I I dream of oh wow that was fun so close to a big score maybe this is something I should do more of. But then I'm like, do I really want to spend my time at the at the Pegasus? Um, Pegasus Day checking uh, double probables, or do I want to have another bottle of champagne with uh, with Michelle and Vanessa? <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard question. Yeah, <laughs> oh, lifestyle really lifestyle really plays into it at some point, um, and and I and I think it's very you know very respectable. You've been able to to find a plan that enables you to to do what you need to do in terms of your family and still. Uh, still score. It's, you know, I often complain about Hong Kong and say, oh, I'd play it so much more. I'm sure we'd be working with them if it was a decent hour. For you, the fact that it's at an indecent hour is actually a feature, not a bug. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, it, it, it's, you know, it, it does suck. I mean, it's, it's not fun, but the opportunity and the, you know, the opportunity to still use this, really the only skills I have in life to, to make money. <laughs> Um, and, and do it while I can have a, a basically normal family life is is very appealing to me. Yeah, but it's not the uh, you know the decision making at three in the morning sometimes is not where it needs to be, and um, you know it's still a struggle. But it it's it, it is a it would be more of a feature for me. Yeah. What about your life in? 10 years do you see yourself self still playing the horses or were you sincere when you said you have this one goal and if you hit it you might be done uh, you know i a few years ago I, I sort of decided i wanted to play pretty seriously until i was 50 um, which would be another six and a half years so you know i imagine i'm still um I'm still betting some 10 years from now, but I, I, I hope and I plan for it to be more of targeted, you know, big score targets, you know, big pick six carryovers in Hong Kong, the BCBC, and that's it. Not the day-to-day, you know, taking trips and making figures and, and all of it. You know, I, I'd, I'd much rather be – financially secure enough to where I can just sort of play at half speed and, and be semi-retired at that point. Well, I'll tell you what, but the, the trajectory in the money media is on six years. That's probably about the time I'll be able to offer you a full-time podcasting position. So you could, you could come back on that as well. That's you, you, you've got, you've got good, you entertain people on the mic. That is another monetizable skill that you have. I know that for a fact. I I well, I don't know how monetizable it is. I don't know how sponsorable I am. I could, <laughs> <laughs> some, some of these places probably don't want to be associated with my mouth, but that's very funny. No, no, you, I, I think it's on the. I, I think you'd be surprised, my friend. I think I think you'd be surprised. And again, just uh, it's just amazing to think of this. Uh, to think of this of this journey when you were. Let's go back to just a little bit early in the year. I'm just going to probe a little more psychology. I won't keep you more than another 15, I promise. But no, just... it's, 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 We can go for another hour if you want to. I'm good, oh, man. That's, you're very kind. 
Like, did you, what was the darkest, what was the darkest you got this year? I mean, it was a fairly extreme step, I think, to say, hey, I'm in, I need to do something to break out of my rut. Let's do a podcast. Like, I'm curious to know how bad it got when it was bad and, and to hear, you know, how the, 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 how, if at all, the shows helped get you back, not just to have such a great year, but, you know, to scale these new heights as a horse player. That's a really good question, Pete. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think I got to the point where I really seriously questioned my future. Like, like, can, can I continue doing this? But I definitely got to the point where I, I really questioned my betting philosophy and the way I was going about things. Um, you know, sometime, sometime last winter, there was a there was a race in Hong Kong where I, you know, keyed a thirty to one shot with the favorite, and it was a a defensive sort of chicken shit bet, and the thirty to one shot won, and the favorite ran out, and you know, I didn't cash a ticket, and that was probably the race where I was like, you know, you've got to you've got to really think about what the hell you're doing and how you're doing it because there's clearly tons of potential and opportunity and you're not taking advantage of it. Um, and that, that's probably right around when I you know, approached you about just doing the podcast. I, you know, I remember reading something about, um, I think it was Charlie Munger, you know, great investor, Warren Buffett's partner, um, and about how he would journal his thoughts and how that helped with his, you know, investing process. And then you know, I remember some other great investors, you know, saying similar things and how, you know, they've got these widely read newsletters now, but it all just sort of started as a personal endeavor where they were just trying to help themselves. Um, and I'm not much of a writer, but I do enjoy talking. I've always been more of a, a talk it out therapy kind of guy. So that's that's when I approached you and just sort of had the idea of, you know, I thought it could be interesting and, and could help other people in their journey, but it was totally selfishly designed to help me in mine. Um, and it did. I mean, it helped. It helped a lot. It helped just get my sort of honed my thought processes down and forced me to talk about mistakes I'd made and to, to start learning from them again, because I'd sort of, you know, I'd sort of fallen into the trap of, of saying, well, okay, that was a bad, you know, that was a mistake, but look at the potential. That was a mistake, but look at the potential. But, you know, at some point you've got to take advantage of the potential that's there and, yeah. and start cashing tickets again. So that, you know, that's where the the show sort of helped me was to just talk things out, think about, force me to think, force me to, you know, correct some mistakes and, and, and stuff like that. You're more of a lurker, I'd say, on, on Twitter generally. But the other day you reposted a piece of advice from a guy called Shane Parrish. While the rest of us mm -hmm. are chasing victory, 
the best in the world know they must avoid losing before they can win. It turns out this is a surprisingly effective strategy. Is that sort of what you're talking about when you're describing your journey this year? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, how many times have I said my biggest enemy is is the lack of liquidity? If I go, if I go broke, I'm out of a job. I'm out of business. I, you know, and 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 it goes into the the last bet I made in the BCBC. Like, I'm not I'm not risking this, you know, a six figure loss to win a contest. Um. I'll I'll risk something certainly, but I'm not going to throw away a you know a, a, a huge year and a huge score to do it. And so that's you know and that's the that's to me that's the 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 philosophy that all the great traders have had. Paul's philosophy: bet a little to win a lot. That's it, man. I mean that's. You know that's the key to me to long-term success is avoiding blowing your account up. You know it's it can be really tempting to say I can make a guaranteed ten percent betting flight line to show. Give me a million dollars. Let's do it. <laughs> and then he fucking stumbles out of the gate or you know breaks down like Epicenter did, and then it's just like oh my god. That's not an outcome I want to be anywhere near my account. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's just the essence of money management. I mean, that's everything Mike talks about in his book, the tuck rule. All that stuff is designed to avoid losing in order to win. It might have been the best example yet of the tuck rule. You're playing the you're playing the classic tucking the hundred and taking a yeah. shot with the rest. It's it's exactly. it could be an example when when we finally get the updated book to come out. Uh, we'll have to do that. You ever think of writing a book? Do you is that something that you would ever do? Well, I mean, would you write it for me? Can I just <laughs> tell you stuff and you write it? Because I, I'm I mean, that's pretty much how it worked with Mike. Mike, Mike wrote plenty of that on his own. But yes, yeah. I mean, that's I've been known to do that a time or two. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know if there's a, a need for another handicapping book, but I think you know, I, I would be uh, I would be game if you are at some point, maybe. <laughs> I like it. I like it. That wasn't a no, and. What about getting into the the data, the data business at, at some point, or doing something more with your figures? We we have buyers. Could we use? Could the world use Borman late pace figures? Uh, you know, I, I think horse players could certainly use them. Um, I don't know if I'm willing to part with them, but <laughs> it does feel like, though. I mean, you you're so generous with your info. But I guess the problem is if you do it commercially, then it's in like every model, I guess, is the difference. Like you you tell horse players basically what you're going to play and then, you know, they have to – obviously, they, we've talked about this so many times how you, you can have the same info and come up with wildly, wildly different bets. I suppose that's so with, with, uh, with figures too. Mm-hmm. But um, – yeah, it just uh, it was just an idea that occurred to me. Another uh, another way to, to to market your 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 skill set. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's something I've it's something I've thought of. But that that's a whole. I mean, that's a full time job. Um, you 
know, you, you can't miss a day. You've got to make figures all the time for all the tracks. It's not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to the not work as much philosophy. I'm, I'm sort of operating under at the moment, but. Hire a team and supervise. Come on. Yeah. Well, Andy still makes figures amazingly. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. It's, uh, goes back to the, you know, Andy, Andy and his associates love what they do and always will. And I'm still, you know, it's a, it's a job for me. So it's work. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. That, that, that is amazing. I mean, obviously you're moved by the, 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 the it, it's not just clearly it, it, these not might not as well be uh, dice or would they, I mean, you, you must care about horses as a Lexington guy to some degree. Well, yeah, I do. Um, I, I certainly care about the horses. I, you know, it's, I, I hate when the when the horses get injured, and, and and there's times where I hate being a participant in this industry. I mean, you know, those two breakdowns at Saratoga over the summer it was hard. You know, it, it's you sit there, and the first thing I thought was, I'm I'm really thankful Maggie and Hazel weren't sitting there with me watching those races. The second thing I thought was, you know, how do you how do you justify being involved in this sometimes you know and it's it's tough man so i yeah i certainly i certainly like the horses i love the people in the industry but you know there was a time in my life where i it was you know it wasn't just i loved racing and i wanted to bet on racing it was i loved the idea of gambling Mm -hmm. and using math and using my brain to make money so it you know if i was if i was me you know if i was that age now and sports betting had just become legal i'm not 100 percent sure I'm, I'm a i'm a horse player right um, and that's the problem the industry has in my opinion is there's just there's there's better options what do you there's think? Not, there's not a better puzzle to solve than horse racing, in my opinion. But there's definitely better gambling options, theoretically. I'm not so sure that the sports betting markets are really that much better because I think they're just rife with computer teams as well. Um, sure. And they're they're also starting to, you know, they're they're starting to drift more upwards in price. I think than than saying, hey, we've got our product priced properly we need to leave it there but now you're, you're starting to see some of these lines the juices moving against the players versus for them but you know it is what it is do you think racing has a way of trying to take advantage of the burgeoning sports market i mean we're seeing for the first time i guess it's tvg now has them has racing in the same uh in the same wallet, in the same screen as sports. That that's a start. I'm a broken record saying I think fixed odds would help, but is there anything else you could think of that racing might be able to to do to tie in to tie in with this stuff and not be a competitor? Because you ain't gonna win that competition. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I think I think they're sort of up against it in that it's a, it's more of a niche sport than than mainstream sports are, and it's you know I've just seen with my friends over the years that you know they'd come out to Keeneland, they'd hang out with me in the office, and, and they'd bet racing, 
but almost none of them would go home and, and continue the bet racing when the Keenan season was over. I mean, right. you know, every now and then they would. Um, but everybody thinks they know what's going on in the world of sports because, yeah. you know, our lives are just inundated with it. So, um, and it's so, you know, now that it's going to be so easy to just get an account and start betting sports and, you know, watching highlights and think you actually know something. That's something that racing, I, I don't know how they can really combat that aspect of it. Um, you know, it's going to be tricky. I don't know if they can, if, if they can, I don't know, man, it, 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 it's, they're, they're sort of in a tough spot, I think, because it's, you know, we've got the worst pricing. We've got the least visibility, you know, of the mainstream stuff. So uh, I don't know. It's tough. I'd love to see a coordinated effort, you know, get between, between the championship games on a, on a NFL Sunday or halftime. I mean, this is really hard logistically, but if you could somehow run a big race at halftime and promote it as a second screen experience and have it be, you know, some sort of good gambling terms or some sort of, you know, there's got to be creative ways of, of integrating it. Now, granted, I'm asking for complicated um, next level marketing ideas in a, in, a, in a sport where we have these basic problems like the toad and pricing. But I don't know. I feel like I've got a pretty good marketing brain. And if there are industry people listening and you want to brainstorm a little bit, I mean, that's one thing about us here at In the Money. You know, we don't, anytime we're clients with somebody, um, we, we're not just clients, we're consultants, really, if you want. And I'm also willing to do a lot of free consulting just to, to try to do things to, to support the, to support the game. So if anybody's curious, you know, I'm, I'm pretty easy. I'm a pretty easy guy to find as far as that goes. I think we're getting pretty close to the end of our time here, Sean, but is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Anyone else you wanted to shout out, vilify, um, get off your chest? No, I think, you know, I, I, I'll, you know, just ended by, by thanking a couple more people. I, you know, Paul Matisse and I have had some incredible conversations over the years that have, that have made me a better player. Um, and, and Marshall Graham, same thing. We've had incredibly deep dives into a lot of the stuff that, that you and I talked about today. And, and, and they both contributed to making me a better horse player. And I just, I'll, I'll, I'll say thank you to both of those guys. too. Fabulous stuff. I love that uh, the BCBC title stays in the family. I can still, I can still use the reigning BCBC uh, champion line anytime you're on these airwaves. It was a, a just result. It was a great result. Sean, thanks, not just for today, but for all that you've given back to horse players over the years. And uh, we will be continuing. I don't know. You you tell me when you want season two of uh, the Pro Player Diary to, to, to begin. I am going to call this show the uh the, the season finale of uh, of season one but that doesn't mean we can't, can't get back at it maybe maybe an hkir show or something yeah possibly i'm uh, you know i've got a feeling by the end of this week i'm gonna be sort of talked out <laughs> it's not till december <laughs> yeah so we'll uh that, that, i would say that would be the earliest <laughs> but we'll, we'll see we'll see we, we that might be it that might be a fun show to do that, that's yeah. an interesting day of racing it's not the it's not the best gambling day for me just because you got so many sort of unknown horses shipping in there but um yeah that that, that could be interesting 
we'll talk. We got we got Tim Carroll, we got Mike Adolfson, we got Andrew Brown, we got a lot of fun people we can talk to about uh, about Hong Kong things. I'll work on getting a sponsor for that one. Um, oh, the money I was going to pay you for hosting the uh, for hosting the the show with Duke, the pro player show before Breeders' Cup. I think I'm just going to hang on to that. Is that okay? That's totally fine. <laughs> That was fun. You did such a great job um, foisted into the into the host role. Okay, Sean, we'll let you get on with it. Uh, really appreciate you and everybody out there. Thanks for all the comments. Uh, this is a great result. And uh, that's it for In the Money Media. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital for reigning Breeders' Cup betting challenge champion, Sean Borman. May you win all your photos. <laughs> <laughs>